to November's SFI Not So Live with me, Jay Evans, your host. Um, welcome in another turbulent month in politics and in housing and property markets, but we'll find out more about that with this amazing panel this month. Um, let's go to Tony first. Tony, I'm going to give you a little introduction. I think everyone knows who you are by now if they listen to this podcast, but Tony, um, you've got something to tell us, so uh, welcome. <laughs> let's give an introduction to the audience. Yeah, no. Hi, everybody. Don't get too excited. I've just a slight change of job title name. Same same old job, still looking after our intermediaries and making sure that they get what they need. But my new role is now head of business development. There we go. Congratulations on the name change. Uh, and I, we're joined by another industry stalwart, Mr. Phil Lawford. Morning, Phil. Morning, Jay. Let's have a little introduction from you as well, just in case there's any new listeners. Yeah, I'm Phil Lawford, National Account Manager for the Saffron, uh, and I look after our, some of our, our key relationships. Wonderful. And our special guest this month, and I don't think special is quite enough of a stronger word for this young man. We are very pleased to have with us Mr. Ray Bulger. Ray, hello. Good morning. A uh, quick introduction for our audience, if they, I'm sure they know who you are. Okay, good morning. Uh, well, I've been uh, in the mortgage market for some while. I joined John Charcoal in 1989. Um, and as a consultant, um, my job title is Senior Mortgage Technical Manager. Used to be Senior Technical Manager, but uh, I used to get loads of spam emails from people who thought I knew something about IT, so he inserted the mortgage. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I've been around a while, and uh, prior to joining John Charcoal, um, I was an IFA for a short period, and prior to that, I worked in the stock exchange for about 18 years, primarily in the gilt edge and fixed interest department. So that uh, knowledge um, of how the markets work has proved really helpful, particularly in volatile times like we've seen over the last few weeks. Well, it's an absolute joy to have you with us. Thank you so much, Ray, for joining us. And um, we will be tapping into that knowledge um, on some of these subjects today, definitely. So thank you again. So without wasting any time, quick um, for those that are new to the podcast, we just discussed some of the biggest issues that we've seen in the trade presses around mortgages and the property market. We discuss them. We give our views. Um, just a little caveat. This is our personal views, uh, not necessarily that of our employers. Um, however, um, and also just remember that this is recorded at the end of October. So if you're listening any later than that, some of the discussion may be slightly out of date, especially the way the politics is moving in the last few months. So Let's crack on to our first um, first topic. It's from, it's from This Is Money, uh, from the Daily Mail. And the headline is, Tracker and SVR Mortgages, now cheaper than fixing. Now, Tony and I have had many a conversation about this. Um, and it's true, isn't it, Tony? Give us an insight into to what's going on with regards to the, the relationship between Tracker and SVR and fixed. Well, it, it's I suppose it's history repeating itself because, um, you know, and, and, and Ray... Well, I'm Phil, I can all have lots of stories about this over the years of, of, of that. But variable rates were always cheaper than fixed rates because the, the idea of a fixed rate when it caught on was that it was a premium for having security and, and safety over what you were paying each month. And therefore, you generally paid more. We kind of forgot that over the last decade and fixed rates got, you know, as cheap as 0.99 um, and you know, were far cheaper than the variable rates. Obviously, what's happened in the last few weeks with swap rates meant that fixing is um, a a bit of a lottery and a, and b a lot more expensive than it was. So variable rates have naturally found a new home, and quite rightly because for the right customer who can absorb changes in interest rate, they are a really a really useful option. And as you say, the differential between I mean, I think the cheapest variable that you can see is probably a 269 uh, variable rate at the moment versus the cheapest two-year fix is probably around about six. So there's got to be quite a jump in base rate or the, the lender's SVR to see that catch up. But it's whether that individual, from an affordability perspective, can cope with that. But what we are seeing already is um, variable rate cost rising. We've seen lenders come in with rates in the twos and they're now back in the high threes because they're getting busy. So that's the naturally seeing that rate go up in order to slow that market down as well. So it's an interesting time, but we're also now seeing fixed rates dropping than where they were even two weeks ago. Um, 
I think Skipton have reduced their rates by 0.6% in certain rates today. So there are, there's winners and losers in this, but yeah, variable rates are now, should be the basis of the conversation with the customer as opposed to it was always fixed rates. But I'll, I'll, I'll let the others come in on this because they've got far more knowledge. I'm, I'm going to come to you, Ray, first on that, actually, just talking about the relationship with fixed rates, certainly over the last decade. Um, do you think we're now going to see that fundamental shift with uh, brokers now taking more, paying much more attention to trackers and SVRs? Uh, well, I certainly think that conversations these days need to consider whether the client should have a fixed rate or a floating rate, whereas until recently, the question was, how long should you fix for? Um, so that's a very different mindset. Um, and um, it doesn't help when our um, recently um, departed Prime Minister doesn't understand how mortgages are priced. Um, those of you who followed the hustings um, and indeed saw her trying to justify her actions since will have seen her say that the Bank of England fixes mortgage rates. So, you know, she clearly either yeah. didn't understand that it's mm. the market that fixes mortgage rates when you're talking about a fixed rate and the Bank of England only influences admittedly very heavily the cost of um, mortgages when it's on a variable rate um so um understanding how mortgages are priced clearly clearly will help advisors to uh, give clients a bit of insight as to which route to go but if you look at gilt yields um, which are the major influence on fixed rate pricing which then of course feeds through to swap rates and that's effectively dictating the cost to lenders of money they're going to lend on a fixed rate you can see that the gilt yields have fallen right back to even lower than they were prior to Kwartang's mini-budget. So I think we can expect to see some quite significant falls in, in the cost of fixed-rate mortgages. They've started to come down, but they haven't fallen very far. Uh, and so with the cost of funds way down, there's plenty of scope for rates to fall further. Now, of course, one of the problems lenders have is that even if they um, can afford to drop their rate, because the cost of funds is cheaper. Um, if they drop it to become market leader, then they're going to get flooded out with business and their service levels yeah. falls. So there's a whole raft of factors which influence um, pricing. But certainly at the, at the moment, if I had a client who absolutely had to get a mortgage today, I would say look for a variable rate of some sort. You know, perhaps a, a, a tracker deal with no earlier payment charges so that you can opt out when the time is right to fix, because I'm sure there will be a time that's right to fix at some stage in the future. We just don't know when. Equally, there are quite a few lenders who offer discounted or tracker rates with what we call a drop lock option, whereby even if that deal has early repayment charges, you can switch into one of the lender's fixed rates without incurring the early repayment charge. So that's another thing to look out for. Some lenders offer that, others don't. Um, and of course, um, one sees the majority of discounted rates are only for two years. There are some that are longer, um, but two years is probably long enough because I think within a two-year period, we'll be much better placed and we'll know exactly what's going to happen. So short, short term, um, if you have the luxury of being able to wait to get a mortgage because your current deal is not ending for a few months, for example, then I'd say hold on because you'll have the choice of some cheaper fixed rates. We know that, well, I say we know, we pretty well know that bank rates are going to increase on November the 3rd. We just don't know by how much. Indications are it's going to go up to about 3%. That's clearly going to push up the cost of tracker rates by definition and probably most discount rates. So as the cost of fixed rates falls and the, the price you pay for a variable rate increases, what is currently a very large gap is going to narrow. So in a month or two's time, the advice might be very different. But at this point in time, I think it's premature to lock into a fixed rate. Phil, just coming to you. Thanks, Ray. Phil, just coming to you on that. Um, what's you, you're working with the brokers at the moment and you're out in the field. Um, is there, has there been a fundamental shift? Are you seeing this change now and, and a lot more inquiries for, for different types of products? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the sort of sentiment there is, is yeah, for, for more experienced advisors, it, it, it's almost back to how it was pre, I suppose, pre, pre-credit crunch where, where before we were in this benign rate environment. But, but yeah, we, we're certainly seeing more, I'm certainly seeing more conversations around the benefits of having a, a variable rate where, where that differential is, um, is, you know, it is significant 
uh, you know, particularly if, if the gap's around about 2% at the moment. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm guessing the mark, again, Ray's probably really good to comment on this. But, uh, I'm guessing the, um, the, the, the market's probably already priced in a 1% increase already. Um, and that's probably reflected in, in the swaps now. So, uh, yeah, it's, good, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how it, how it goes. But, yeah, there's definitely seen that sentiment switch there with, with, with broker conversations to, uh, to more variable rate products. Uh, it's then more, more open to it. Right, coming back to you on your experience of the markets, to be honest, you just mentioned briefly in what you were saying in the last comment about the markets sort of approve, improving since we, you know, Liz Truss has left office and Rishi's come in, um, you know, and, and the outcome, I mean, it's not here yet, it was supposed to be Monday, but it's coming on the 17th of November with this midterm. Um, do you think we're going to see an increased improvement in the markets? Are they feeling more confident in your experience and from your knowledge, do you think we can see a bit of positivity for the next few months? Uh, yes, I think there's very clear signs that the markets are feeling much more comfortable now we've got, um, should we say, the grown-ups running the economy again. Uh, and uh, that's very evident just by looking at what's happening in the sterling dollar market and, and, and also in the gilt market. The fact that when it was announced that the mini-budget or whatever it's going to be called, the autumn statement, is going to be delayed didn't actually... Um, cause the market any concern. In fact, guilt yields actually fell back a bit further. I think just demonstrates that the market has significant um, confidence that you know we, we're going to come up with a statement which is credible, and, and that clearly was the problem before. Um, so we, we know that bank rate is likely to keep going up after the November meeting. So that, that clearly gets factored into guilt yields and hence fixed rate pricing because the market's always looking ahead. I think the really interesting question, and it's difficult to be remotely confident of the answer to this, is when will bank rate peak and how long will it take before it starts to fall? So, you know, the, the, the normal expectation when we're, we're looking at a recession is that you'd expect bank rate to fall. But of course, we're in very unusual circumstances at the moment, and there's you know, even more elements that are unpredictable than normal. Um, but at some stage, inflation will fall back, not least when the, 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 the big hike in energy costs falls out of the year-on-year -year equation. So uh, uh, if, if, if I mean, when, when we thought that energy prices were going to be capped for two years, uh, that was a good indication that inflation would actually have peaked in the last quarter of next year. Now we don't know what's going to happen, although gas prices have fallen sharply. Uh, but once the, the big increases we've seen in energy costs falls out of the year-on-year -year calculation, then there is scope for inflation to fall down quite quickly. And the Bank of England, of course, will be very conscious of that when they're setting bank rate. Great. So thank you, Ray. Tony, just coming over to you really quickly. I've just finished this topic off, really. One of the discussions we've had a lot is, is a lot of people need a new product. There's a lot of fixed that are uh, ending over the, well, before the end of December. Um, it's, it's, it's likely to say those getting a mortgage now are going to be um, a lot worse off than they would be if they perhaps you know had an extra year to play with. Um, what's your advice yeah. to the brokers when <clears> advising <throat> these people? Well, it's, it's just this. Uh, it generally is. It's it's using their experience and 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 professionalness to find them the right deal for them. May that be with their existing lender. You know, if there's an opportunity that fits with them with their existing lender but allows them some flexibility so that if there is changes in the market they can take advantage of that that's one option or it's finding the right you know the right remortgage deal it really is that it, it is an unfortunate period and and you know i'm part of that because my fixed rate comes up next year so um so you know we're all in this together so it, it's unfortunately or fortunately this is just part of the mortgage cycle this happens and it will continue to happen whilst there's still a mortgage market. So there's winners and losers. At the moment, we're going into a a bit of a, um, a higher interest rate environment. But end of the day, your advisor's there to make sure that the, whatever loan you get is affordable for you. You might have to cut back on other stuff, but that's unfortunately the cost of owning a property. 
Well, this is true. We all take that risk, I suppose. Um, I talk from a, a non-experienced perspective as, a, as Tony's more than aware, sitting here with no mortgage and, and no rent. I'm everyone's worst nightmare. Okay, so let's move on uh, before I gloat any further um, to uh, our second story. This one's... Um, Brought to us by a mortgage introducer, and the headline is LNG says it's a steady market with some changes into what's being searched. I chose this story because um, I found it's quite interesting. We, we often talk about the buoyancy of the market and what's going on. Um, but the interesting thing in here was the shift in um, you know, what people are searching for. Tony, you've had a look at the article. What were your thoughts on um, what was discussed? Is this going to be, is this, is this a reflection of where the market's sitting? I was quite, I mean, I'll be interested in obviously Phil and Razor, but I was quite surprised in the amount of um, activity in the buy-to-let sector because there's been a lot of concern over the last couple of weeks that buy-to-let with um, the increased affordability hurdles of, of ICR when you're looking at doing a buy-to-let mortgage are getting squeezed because affordability is going up. But there's obviously an awful lot of activity around HMOs, I mean, 53% increase. That was the one that caught my attention. That's what the story I found quite interesting was yeah. HMOs is a, is a really good sign that, um, yeah, there's investment in that sort of, in, you said it by Tillet, again, the two two areas. Uh, it was quite interesting to see. That's interesting as well. Landlords using gifted equity as well went up by 32%. So, again, generally is that people who can't afford a residential mortgage but do have the ability to get onto the property market as a landlord and therefore are looking at gifts from family so maybe that's a new dynamic so it's it's interesting um you know um that as i said and no surprise as well searching around epc rating is, that's... is, starting, is, is growing so you know is that because of increasing costs? Yeah. Is it because of impending regulation as well, particularly in the buy-to-let space? Probably yes. So it's a mixture. We're we're in a di- we're into a you know a, a different dynamic, um, and right. you know later life searches are on the increase as well, which is again no surprise because that's a cost of living squeeze. Ray, um, I'll come straight over to you then uh, on that. So, uh, Tony gave a really good uh, analysis of what's in the story. What were your thoughts on it? What do you think is influencing this change in in search criteria? Well, the first general point I'd make is that um, uh, when you get stories like this, they always quote percentages. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really know how significant these changes are. Now, if you had three searches last month and four searches this month, that sounds fantastic if you just quote the percentage, 33% increase. Um, so it would actually be quite helpful if um, um, Money Facts and LNG and anybody producing these sort of figures um, stipulates that they're only basing it on situations where there's a minimum number of transactions, something like that. So, um, so that, that would be my first caveat. Um, but the, the story about HMOs particularly struck me because... Uh, my, one of my grandsons is at uh, university in Durham, and uh, some of you may have heard on the news this morning stories about the problems students there are having finding um, finding property. Uh, now, my grandson's in, in a property at the moment, and he's been told by his landlord um, that the rent for next year is going up by about 30, 50% to around £1,000 a month. So something's happened in Durham whereby there's a massive dis, um, difference between supply and demand. And, and, of course, HMOs in many cases are going to be occupied by students. So I suspect that a lot of the increased interest in HMOs is for student accommodation where there is much okay. more consistent demand. I have to agree. I did, when I saw HMOs, that was the first thing that came to me. And it's funny, actually, Ray used to say about that story because it's been bubbling for a little while that lots of... It's interesting, Durham, but there was quite a few areas um, that they were seeing huge increases or they were actually struggling to get student accommodation. So the increase in HMO inquiries is a good thing. Um, I was going to come to Phil, but Tony, just (laughs) very, very quickly. What are the sort of fundamental shifts are we seeing in the market? As you know, we've talked a fair bit about affordability and and the state of the market and what's going in now. Are you seeing any sort of specialist products seeing increases? You know, we talk about first-time buyers quite a lot, and we're going to talk about them shortly. But, yeah. you know, there are alternative products out there. Is it is it that people are now starting to 
to look you said you you said it briefly in your comment just now with regards to you know people looking at alternative ways to fund it and to to fund and to to look after what do you think is uh a fundamental change if you like in in products that have been inquired about I still think it's um as long as there's a fundamental change because we're in such a state of flux that it's very hard to pin a trend on anything at the moment um what has been rising even before the mini the mini budget and meltdown was obviously the amount of searches and requirements for adverse credit as the you know the cost of living is started to ramp up that we've seen that going up or consistent feature in sourcing over the last 12 months and probably increasing so we and you know there's a big article from Lloyd's yesterday who've massively inc- increased their provisioning for bad debts um so they're seeing the optimistic side not um so i think that's probably what we'll start to see more of again people who have who have fallen behind with payments but looking to remortgage and therefore seeking you know a, a lender that will consider that so we're definitely seeing that increase um do you think do you later. think the lenders are going to suddenly become a bit more flexible do you think that it's going to be an issue i think i mean you see no it's generally they'll generally they'll go the other way well the high in my in my experience the mainstream will go the other way because you don't want that on your book but for for lenders like ourselves who are accepting of people who who have made mistakes we're not talking heavy duty or consistent mistakes but have made a mistake and and are now kind of clear of that then yes there is always going to be an outlet but the pricing of those products that's going to be probably the the interesting factor and in whether those individuals are going to be able to afford such a loan but there's always a home for somebody that needs one um it's just probably going to cost a little bit more and a few hurdles to get to it right do you have a, a wider market insight um than probably any one of us do are there more and more lenders out there looking at adverse um as tony's saying is it is inevitability that some people are going to fall behind um and are those products priced fairly I think there's enough competition in the market to suggest that they are priced fairly. And clearly, it's a matter of judgment for any one lender, you know, what their risk appetite is. Um, I um, I just wonder whether actually the, the, the big lenders will, will be allowed to be quite as strict as um, Tony is suggesting. I'm sure he's right that they would want to be. But bearing in mind, we've got the new consumer duty rules coming in um, yeah. in July <clears throat> next year, where lenders are going to have to actually take a... You know, a, a, a look at providing good consumer service for the whole period of the mortgage, not just initially. I think there is going to be pressure from the FCA and possibly also from the government um, for the big lenders to be more accommodating than they might perhaps prefer to be. So obviously extending the mortgage term where that's possible, um, switching to interest only are the, are the usual ways of doing that. Um, so I think to the extent that happens, that that's going to you know, reduce the demand for people who, who do need to remortgage onto a specialist lender. Um, the other factor which I think is relevant and, and very different to the situation we've had in some previous downturns, particularly the 1990s downturn, is that because of the growth we've seen in property prices over the last couple of years in particular, um, even if we see a fall in house prices of around 10% or so, which I think is likely, most people, even those who borrowed 95% a year ago, are actually going to still be in positive equity. Um, yeah. and, and if they're in negative equity, it's going to be pretty small. So um, the, the, the ability of lenders to be more accommodating when there's equity in the property is clearly greater. So I'm, I'm not as concerned as some of the comments from other, from, uh, other commentators about the, the, the degree of, of, of stress. I mean, as Tony said, people will prioritise their mortgage payments. Um, they will cut back on non-essentials in order to, to do that. Um, and although you're always going to get stories of people who are in difficulty, bearing in mind that anybody who's taken out a mortgage in the last um, 10 years or so will have been stress tested in most cases at around 7%, unless they've taken a longer term fix. Um, okay, that didn't factor in the, the big increase in energy prices we've seen. Um, um, but, but I suspect whilst lenders will clearly sensibly want to increase their reserves, uh, their bad debt provision, we will probably end up seeing what we saw after COVID. So back in 2020, 
all the big lenders significantly increased their bad debt provision because you know lots of pain was expected, unemployment, etc. And then they ended up writing back those bad debt provisions in 2021. So when you're looking at lenders' P&Ls, actually, one of the biggest factors influencing the P&L is how much the lenders are increasing their bad debt provision or how much they're writing it back. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Thank you, Ray. Um, as insightful as ever. That was really useful. Um, so lots to talk about on that. Welcome back, Phil. Uh, so we, <laughs> we are now moving on to our... Uh, next story, um, it's a bit older than the previous ones, but I did that for a reason. It's from The Guardian, and this was related to the pullback on the 95%. Um, and, well, as they put it, first-time buyer-friendly mortgages, uh, with 137 products available. This is on the 24th of October, by the way, um, uh, against 50, 353 in December of last year. I've brought this story out. It's a little bit old because actually there's been a lot of people coming back in and I wanted to have that conversation, uh, certainly with you, Ray, with your your experience and, and Phil in the field. Um, there was, obviously, there is a lot of concern for first-time buyers, especially around affordability and obviously the products haven't been there. They came out as soon as the mini budget happened. Everyone pulled back. Everyone got a little bit worried, a little bit nervous. Everyone got a bit skittish. But we are seeing those products coming back now, Ray, aren't we? We're starting to see lenders coming back to their 95% and a little bit more, certainly more first-time buyer-friendly products. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 95% mortgages didn't disappear from the market, of course. Just the number available um, was significantly reduced. And as you say, they're now coming back. One of the things that I think is really interesting um, at the moment is that the spread between low and high LGV mortgages is, is, has significantly narrowed. So if, if you look back to the summer of last year, typically, if you were looking for a, uh, a, a two or five year fixed rate mortgage and you had a big deposit, then you could be looking at rates of around 1% or even less. But if you needed 95% LGV, you're probably talking around 4% as a starting rate. Now, the differential between 60% and 95% is only about 50, 60 basis points. So although the cost has gone up for everybody, the increase for, for first-time buyers is actually much less. Um, and if we do see rates generally fall, which I think is pretty obviously going to happen because of the way gilt markets have moved, um, then the extra cost first-time buyers are paying, paying now compared with 18 months ago may not be that significant. Probably the biggest issue for first-time buyers at the moment is actually deciding whether now is the right time to buy. So if one's expecting prices to fall, the natural inclination would be to hold off. But obviously some people will have a need to buy now for personal circumstances. But because the market is changing from being a seller's market to a buyer's market, there will be much better opportunities to try and negotiate on the price and uh, you know get a, a reduction on the asking price rather than paying a premium. Uh, and, and also, you know, if we just look at the house price index statistics, um, because they're historic, um, if you're not following the market closely, by the time you see the house price statistics bottom out, then prices are already picked up. So I think for first time buyers, you know, the key, the key challenge is to look at the market in the areas you're thinking of buying carefully, get a good feel for the market so that you can have a good understanding of when the right time to buy is, if you've got that flexibility, perhaps because you're living at home. Um, and at that stage, you know, if, if you can buy at the right price, saving five or ten percent on the purchase price will actually be much more important than worrying about one percent difference on the mortgage rate. Phil, yeah. uh, I'm going to yeah. come to you uh, in the field. Uh, first time buyers having a tough time. How's it been dealing with brokers? You're working with brokers all the time. Uh, how's it been, uh, and how's the market feeling for those now? Is it is it feeling as rough as as the media are making out? And we were obviously picking up media stories, and we have this conversation yeah. often that there can be a lot of uh, inflammatory language and maybe slight yeah. exaggeration. Is it really that bad? No, no, not at all. The sentiment there is is that you know the fundamental factor of supply and demand of property and the desire for home ownership. In, in this country is, is, is still there. That's not changed. There's not enough properties being built. Ultimately, that's that's the that's the the big issue, and that's not changed. Yeah, all of Ray's points are completely right, and I agree with everything he's, everything Ray says. Uh, but in terms of on, on on the ground and in in, in the market with brokers, um, that people people still want to buy houses, and they still still need a mortgage for it, and it's. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's quite 
the media do like to play up sort of stories and sensationalise stuff. I mean, we there was another, there was that, I don't know if it was the BBC, there was that woman interviewed and she reckoned she'd had an, a rate pulled that was, I don't know, really ridiculously low and, and the lender had changed it to 10%. Unless it, the circumstances were so specialist and so unusual, it just it just didn't run. Really just a little bit of a caveat. I'm pretty sure the, that was on. So um, things like that, that need on, to be yeah, called out. It was on question like time. That, I don't need, know if I believe yeah. their audience, but yeah, yeah. I agree yeah, with it, you. And they, they made yeah. such a story of that. So I think there's been a bit of sensationalism there, and because it makes a good story, doesn't it? So yeah, things are I think a lot more calmer and measured there out, out in the field but with brokers and consumers yeah but it is a problem isn't it tony we've had this conversation on many other phil and i like to rant a fair bit about this but we're not building enough houses are we um let's face it let's use the, the swear words that we to try not to talk about because it stirs everyone up but brexit has caused a little bit of a problem with regards to supply costs and other things so you know is it do you think the property market's got a chance to 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 re-energize now the government's had another kick up the bum? We've got the adults back in. Well, it's been it's been trying to re-energize since 1979, Jay. That was the last time we built enough housing to meet demand, and that funny enough period ties in with when we stopped building council houses, basically. So we haven't done it since we changed that social housing policy. So yeah, we always have these new dawns every year for housing. Um, we and you know, I don't know. Hopefully, it's probably the least of the worries at the moment with everything else going on. But, um, you know, there are, we'll come on to the self-build subject as always. There are other ways now of building your own home um, and custom build. You haven't got to wait for someone to build it for you. It's it's not it's not in the mainstream yet, and but there are ways and opportunities to do that. So that's the, the good thing, I think. Just going back to that first-time buyer story, I think I just wanted to add to that around choosing the right time to to buy this is where advisors come into their own as well supporting first-time buyers in making them really clear and saying get your finances in order before you are because the one thing that's going to impact them apart from house price is the affordability of that mortgage yeah and going through the affordability tests and if you've got anything in your finances that isn't right it's going to hurt you so make sure your bank statements are up to date make sure you're not overspending in certain areas and that's what an advisor worth their salt can do well so that's kind of the key thing as well and people shouldn't be applying for a mortgage if they desperately need it if their finances aren't in place because they are going to pay more mm -hmm. because you're going to have to accept a high risk so it's really yeah. that that balance across across it all yeah jump jumping in there i think you know a good advisor could could make a difference in, in, in the rate you, the client's paying by by with a bit of getting to them a bit earlier, particularly first time buyers, educating them on getting their getting everything ship shape as, as Tony says, whether that's their bank statement conduct, making them appear to be in control of the finances, and, and that that could be the difference between them with a you know a, a high street lender getting a lower rate and you know paying a more um, paying oh, a lower rate uh, or, or paying a higher rate for um, having to go to a more specialist niche lender. So that's where advisors can, can come into their own, really. Yeah. I think that's, that's why that's why you guys exist, why why brokers exist and advisors exist is because we need that. And I think for a first time buyer, without if you know your parental influence tells you, doesn't it, or peer influence says, use a broker, use a broker. So Ray, coming from your years and years of experience, for the younger brokers in the audience, how can they let the their their audience know? How can they let people know that they are, you know, the advisor to go to for first time buyers? Because it is really, really important that first time buyers get the best possible advice. How are the brokers approach that when trying to to get new customers uh yeah well my, my first piece of advice would be actually get your solicitor and your mortgage broker lined up choose who you're going to use before you actually start actively looking because once you start actively looking the estate agents are going to try and um cajole you into using their their in-house advisors and it always seemed to me to be rather bizarre that if you are engaging into a contract with somebody you should use a professional recommended by somebody on the other side of that transaction um, and there may well be things about your circumstances that you would prefer 
the estate agent not to know. For example, you might say, well, the maximum price I can afford is X. And if they're also advising you on the mortgage, they might know it's actually X plus something. So um, choose your advisors in advance. Make sure, obviously, on the mortgage front, you're using an independent stroke hole of market broker. And I always feel that the best way to find a recommendation is to talk to friends and colleagues um, who've used brokers in the past and find out who they would recommend and equally important, who they would recommend you avoid. Um, nothing, nothing better than personal recommendation. Um, and although obviously, you know, it talks to our book at John Charcoal because we do get quoted in the press quite a lot. The brokers you see quoted in the press will be brokers that the, the media trust because certainly the main the mainstream consumer media because they don't want to be quoting people who subsequently they're going to have concerns about so that would be a fallback position but my first choice would be talk to friends relatives business colleagues most people will know somebody who's used a mortgage broker in the past so that's a really good way i think the other key thing is you need to decide whether you want face-to-face advice or telephone stroke internet advice i think for most first-time buyers it, it makes sense to have face-to-face advice if you, you know, can find a broker suitable that's convenient for you, either work-wise or where you live, because there are lots of things cropping up during a purchase which you won't even be aware of. And one thing that's really important for a good broker to understand is the soft facts. So it's all very well going through the fact find, and that's clearly critical to get the, the detail. But actually understanding all the soft facts um, will improve the likelihood that the broker is going to make the right recommendation. And I think that's much easier with a face-to-face meeting. I agree. I agree. I'm a big fan of face-to-face. Tony, just coming to you on on the last point, actually, from Ray. It's about getting uh, everything right, isn't it? The broker knowing what to get from the first-time buyer to ensure that success. And, And I suppose... Having that relationship with multiple lenders, as Ray's saying, you know, all market lenders, uh, brokers, sorry, are speaking to multiple lenders, have different relationships. It's about knowing what information you need to give out for the better success for that, for that customer, surely. No, it is. It is. And it is, a, it is a challenge for brokers, you know, especially ones who, who use a diverse range of lenders because you've got to know how all of them work, you know. But I would, always, you know, I would say that's where the, the power of your BDM comes in. If you've got a quality BDM that you can trust, who is, a, who is uh, contactable and gets back to you and is honest and straightforward, then that, that can, well, does make the difference. You know, we all have websites with loads of great information on as lenders, but really it's that trusted relationship with your BDM or the phone team of, you know what, I'm not sure I'll give them a call because I know I'll get a straightforward, honest answer and I'll be clear. That's worth its weight in, in gold at the moment as well. As a BDM, Phil, uh, your advice to your advice to brokers are first for first-time buyers. What sort of information should they be expecting to give to give them the best success, especially around affordability? Yeah, um, it's, it, it, it's just not... I mean, very often we're myself and and the, my BDM colleagues uh we we quite often called in uh when when things don't haven't always gone to plan uh, and and very often it, it's stuff that probably could have been avoided like uh typical like with, with a manual underwriting lender you know we look at bank statements um because we're not reliant on a on a high credit score to to make a decision so we might be spotting transactions on the bank statements and querying it and then that causes delay and the touch point in the process so you know it's it, it's i suppose the first thing is, is as a broker think of yourself as a first line underwriter so if i'm lending my money what you know it's having a look at, at, at the client's documents and saying yeah is there anything slightly odd here that the lender might might question and query and you know nine times out of ten things are explainable and make sense but most of the problems and the issues happen when um the broker's not told us possibly because the broker hasn't um delved quite deep enough with 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 a client and and usually if things are explained and they make sense then then they'll make sense to the underwriters but it's all about communication so it's having the right communication lines with the client the lender you know and and we can we we can then all work together and help help get the right outcomes Uh, as tony would say oh sorry ray carry on 
Okay, I was just going to say, so in endorsing what Phil and Tony have just said, um, I think there's a really strong argument for particularly first-time buyers, but um, it will apply to everybody uh, as well, to go and see their broker several months before they're ready to actually start looking around because yeah. um, the broker can then uh, go through the bank statements, look at other factors, you know, check even simple things like are they on the electoral roll? Um, yes. And if there's things like that um, which will influence the acceptance for a mortgage usually um, if, 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 if that's addressed well in advance then there's time to actually get it right and improve the chances um, and, and I and I think what Phil just said about things like the bank statements is something that some brokers do overlook you know if if, if, if as a broker you identify something in the client's profile that you know or expect is going to be an issue with a lender then much better to go to the lender and say, look, this is the issue with this client and um, explain what the situation is. Then you can get a straight answer normally from the lender as to whether it's a problem or not. Whereas if you actually try and hide it, it's going to crop up and it just wastes everybody's time. So so, uh, so the, the first skill is for the broker to understand what issues may be a problem for the lender uh, and then addressing those with the client so they know what the answer is either up front or when, the, when if, if and when the lender comes back with the query. Brilliant advice there. Thank you, Ray. Uh, Tony, just going to let you say your favourite phrase for this before we move on to the next story. It's always uh, it's Jack and Ori, isn't it? Well, exactly, mate. Good line. <laughs> there. It's all about, well, you know, it is a it is about telling the story. And, you know, it, it is as simple as that. We Our underwriters are good, but they're not mind readers. You know, if you've got a challenging case and that's, largely the reason why you'd use a lender like Saffron because of our personal approach to underwriting and our flexibility. We need to know what it is that you want us to be flexible about. So if you don't give us that, there's probably the strong chance we're just going to say no. So give us the story. Speak to your BDM before. You know, we, we do have the beauty as well if the BDMs meet with our underwriters every morning to discuss tricky cases. So we can give you a, we almost call it the pre-dip, we can give you a dip answer before you've dipped it to save you the time and, 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 and effort. Um, so that's it. And we have a notes function on our portal, on our dip engine, which you can submit your case and put all the notes about it that you want. So if there are things on the bank statement that you've uncovered, tell us. It's easy. It makes it so much easier for us. Investigation and due diligence are oh, two phrases we use in every business, and I think it certainly fits in this section. So thanks, our gents. That was brilliant. On to our next story. Uh, this one comes from Mortgage Strategy, uh, and I've pulled this out because you know, Tony, you know it's one of my favourite topics, greenwashing. Uh, the FCA are due to crack down on greenwashing, or are starting to crack down on greenwashing. Now, this is a part of the wider, as you mentioned earlier, Ray, the consumer duty, but this is just the FCA starting to flex its muscles a bit now. But this really interested me because... Because um, it's talking about, you know, green, sustainable, ESG, all these elements in, in our sector and saying, look, we need to pull out on this. We need to start uh, being serious. Now, I, do, I wanted to use this as a wider discussion. Ray, again, your background um, and your experience on this will be really useful. The same with Tony and Phil. Uh, we, we've talked about this a lot, guys, on, on green products and how green they are. But more to the point. Is there really an appetite? I mean, we've just this uh, just yesterday it was announced that the prime minister is not even going to COP twenty seven. So, are people paying that much attention to the environment at the moment? Is it slipping off because actually we're in a cost of living crisis? Everyone's a little bit pinched. Do they really want to put a product, get a product that's a higher rate because it's green? But also, are these products influencing anything? Are they making any difference, or are they just as this calls it greenwashing? So, Phil, I'm going to come to you first on your experience of green mortgages and discussions with brokers around green products, is there an appetite? Are there customers actually asking brokers, is there a green alternative to this mortgage? I would love to answer and say, yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's really important to clients and that's their prime primary aim. Um, it's not. It's not. At the moment, we've got such a long way to go. And I, I you know, I, I still think that, there's a lot of economic problems and trouble going on, but once all that's sorted and out of the way, which it will, it will eventually, these issues will work through. The green issue, the, the environmental issues, are not going away, and, and this is the biggest 
challenge we've got as an industry. I, I still think that, uh, and we've got to work so much harder to get where we need to do. But at the moment, in terms of clients, consumers, and brokers, um, it, it's not enough of a priority, and, and you know we it, we need to address it. But you know it, it's got to be addressed. I know collectively with the regulator, lenders, um, government. It, 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 it's a big issue uh, that it's going to going to take a lot, take a bit of time. Uh, an effort effort to solve but it's not going to go away it's still going to be there once we've got through i know any sort of recession or inflation or or, or, or everything else Uh, before we talk too much about from market wide let's just talk about products ray um are there any good green products out there do you think actually that does the job or do you think it is just lenders trying to tap into that area or to tick a box in their own ESG strategies because they've got a certain amount they need to do in order to achieve what's been set for them by the government. Do you think this is just a bit of a a kind of show or are there some great products out there? Uh, I think it's very much the latter. Um, I looked up the dictionary definition of sustainable because I've always felt that, um, you know, sustainable is a real buzzword, whatever industry you're in, uh, product providers, try and get that in. Now, sustainable is defined in this particular dictionary anyway as able to be maintained at a certain rate or level. So with that definition, <laughs> lenders could claim all their fixed rate mortgages are sustainable. Um, and uh, so at the moment what we've got is um, a lot of lenders offering some slightly cheaper rates if your property has a, a B rating or a C rating. Um, and for the average residential consumer, where it's all a bit airy-fairy as to what they're going to have to do, nothing really set in stone that anybody believes anyway. Um, I think that's completely irrelevant. If you have a mortgage that fits the criteria and one one lender's green mortgage is cheaper than the best non-green mortgage, then you're going to go for that. But, it, but you know, it, it's it's not a case of it's really influencing what you do. The area where I think there is going to be a lot of real challenge is in the buy-to-let market because um, yeah. although the government recognises that the current EPC rating system is flawed, they seem to be struggling to come up with anything better. And at the moment, it's going to be illegal for landlords to let property after 2025 if it doesn't have a rating of C or above. Now, there were some interesting stats out from the ONS a few days ago saying that 55% of all properties in the UK... Um, are rated D or below. So uh, whilst I'm not sure what proportion of buy-to-let properties in that category, one assumes it's probably not very different. So the possibility of all buy-to-let properties being upgraded to C by 2025 is, is nil. So that poses some really interesting challenges for the government, because if the government sticks to that rule, what's going to happen in 2025 is that a large proportion of properties that are currently rented will not be capable of being rented. Um, and but there's already a shortage of rental properties. So what does that do to people who want to rent and, 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 and to prices? So something's going to have to give. Um, and I'm not sure what it is, but one way or another, the government's going to have to change the rules. Um, and at the moment, the incentives for people to actually do this work are uh, uh, n- not enough to persuade people who are not going to do it anyway to do it. So if, for example, you're going to have to spend... Ten twenty thousand pounds to install a heat pump. How long is it going to take you to recoup that cost in extra rent? Um, so, in pure financial terms, it doesn't stack up. That, therefore, if it's going to happen, the government's going to have to introduce some new measures. And we've discussed this a fair bit, haven't we, Tony? <clears throat> Excuse me. That. <clears throat> You know, the, we've been incentivised to self-build, been incentivised, yeah, there's been incentives for first-time buyers, all these things the government's, the government's done. But Ray's very right, the EPC rating is flawed, but it is one way that we can push change and we can improve the housing stock. So is there more, should there be more focus, as Ray, Ray rightly said there, more focus on the first, um, sorry, on the um, buy-to-let market, because they have a they have a necessity to improve their, product, their, their properties as it is now. So should lenders really be focusing more on that? Yeah, um, look, it's again, it's 
it's all gone a bit quiet on this front recently, obviously, for, for other economic catastrophes that are hitting us. So I think it'll once it settles, it will come back round because obviously you've got the pressure on, um, you know, lenders having to have a, a average C rating across their portfolio, which I still quite can't understand how that's going to happen. Um, because that's, you know, that's, that's going to involve a lot of people borrowing a lot of money to improve their house that maybe can't afford it, but the lender might have to do it in order to uh, uh, reach that. So it's an interesting one. I mean, I think back back to both markets. I think the raise hit the point on the head is the 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 price of being green outweighs the benefit of being green at the moment, and that's the biggest problem. Right? All of us would love to do our bit for the environment and love to save the planet and love to have all the relevant tech that does that, but it comes at a significant cost that is just not commercially viable as a landlord or as a private house owner. It just doesn't make any sense at the moment. And that's the problem. You know, it's perversely all of the whole country is going greener at the moment because none of us are turning our heating on, you know. <laughs> so we're all actually reducing our energy usage. So actually, we're all being green without realising it. But that hasn't come as a desire to be better for the planet. It's because it's costing us more wedge. And that's that's the stimulus. Mm-hmm. So if you get the stimulus in the market saying, do this, you're going to save a load of money. People will do it. So you, the, the infrastructure cost of being green needs to be looked at through government subsidy or, you know, there's the cost of a heat pump, five, you know, great, five grand off something that's going to cost you 15 grand. Thanks. I'm still 10 grand out and it's going to cost me 10 years of not turning it on to get my money back. So, you know, I think that's that's the thing that I think Graham Villa just said it. It's it's we're not going to do this unless our government makes a seismic change to support it. It's just not going to happen. I, I, we've had a brilliant discussion, didn't we, Phil? Um, a few months back, yeah. we had a brilliant discussion on how we can change products and start to, you know, look at suppliers that can that can do these quick works that, that improve EPC rates really quickly, incorporating that into a mortgage somehow, getting government subsidies. You say, Tony, how much did it take for a government to find one company that could supply the whole of the UK at a discounted rate that's subsidised by the government? There's lots can do, but as you said. Um, this isn't going to be top of everyone's priority at the moment in a in a costly no, process. It's, it's also about um, education as well, because as you say, the EPC system is flawed. But I, I don't know who it was. I was on another on another listening to somebody else talk about this subject, and they're on about how to understand an EPC and what can make an impact in it. So, what's the best thing for you to do in order to improve yours? And it is quite an interesting rating system, and you know, a small tweak can make quite a difference. So I think again, there's this 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 public awareness of what is EPC. We all we've all heard it. No, I don't really know what it is, but I think it. There was a lender that's done a lot of work in this area, and I can't think who it is. You produce documentation and guides for it. So I think there is that element of education for all of us, lenders, borrowers, everybody, to really understand what it is we are washing. I, I I I've did an article for for you actually Tony for 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 Saffron. Well, maybe I wrote article. it. Uh, yeah, I think you did. You gave me the info for it. I had to go away and I had to go away and figure out how can we improve an EPC rate. So I I had to go find five small things we can do to improve our EPC rating. And I mean, it was, that's why I find it. That's why I thought it was so good because yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's yours. That's why. Um, <laughs> it's it was um, it was really interesting when I went out and dug deep though because you're absolutely right. A small amount of loft insulation can jump you from an E to a D very quickly, which is why I think, as Ray said, it's fundamentally flawed because actually it's going to make absolutely all difference to the efficiency of the home really in in reality it's not going to change the world if every house did that it's not going to change the country and the, and, and the way the housing sort of sits so lots of discussion still to have on that um, and that cues up quite nicely to look out for something from tony and i coming forward in the next couple of months we're going to do um a webinar special on on green and on various different things so do look out for that uh, on saffron's social channels we're going to be very quickly because we're running out of time we always do this running out of time we've got one topic left to do and i always say to everybody when they come on let's not talk about politics and i've put an entire story in about politics but it was to ask your opinion so the lovely mr gove is back as lovely Upper secretary he was removed after boris and he's now back now the adults are back in charge he has been 
quite influential in 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 our sector before. He's obviously now sec- uh, secretary for the leveling up housing and community. So he's now back. What do we need him to do? What would be? I'm going around to each one of you. What would be the one thing you'd you'd want him to do to really revolutionise or start to revolutionise our sector? Um, and I'll come to Ray first. Yeah, well, Tony mentioned earlier self-build and custom build. And uh, this is one area where um, I think more intervention from the government would help. Now, at the moment, if you register with a local authority as wanting to have a self-build plot, they're required to find you one within three years. Um, But a large number of local authorities uh, have managed to find a way around that by saying that um, you need to have a mortgage offer available before we find you a plot. And of course, nobody's going to have a mortgage offer that's valid for three years. So um, talking to local authorities and stopping them from effectively um, preventing the government from achieving what it wants to achieve by introducing these petty rules would be something I think that would be really helpful. And and also, of course, there's still more work to do on the cladding front. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Um, Thank you, Ray. Thank you for your comments. Uh, Tony? Um, I think just just finishing off um, Ray's comment there about local authorities is, you know, and that you, you, the chicken and the egg scenario, because we, you know, as a as a as a preeminent self-build lender in the market, we we will not even look at a deal until you've got planning permission. <laughs> so that doesn't quite work, does it, um, to get an offer on a bit of land that you haven't got and a plan that you haven't got approved. So the, I think Ray's right. I would I would just going to amplify that and say let's sort out this that the, the self-build laws and free up the land that people desperately need in order to to build houses and I think the other thing is bit tongue-in-cheek try and stay in a job for long enough to make a difference yeah um and not get on the roundabout this has I, been the problem isn't no, it? at least uh, I think uh, this again try not to be too political but th- this one thing that does always make me laugh is um I know Mr. Gove has done some good stuff in the market before, but we have these people in these roles that have no background in the subject that they're now a minister of. And I always find that a bit of a chuckle. So it is just jobs for mates, which is, but let's hope this time um, they stay long enough to actually make a difference. I don't, I don't do this very often, but in defence of the department, there are some brilliant civil servants who work in a department. Oh, it's look, just, it's just the we, face we, they put at the top yeah, of it. But hopefully, exactly. I know what we, you're we saying, all, though. It's the, it's the driver. We all, we all know it's the department that the civil servants that run it. You know, I remember, I remember Grant Shapps when he was um, promoted to housing minister back in 2012. And meeting him at an event and you know he's done the whole merry-go-round of every job you know so it, it just it just makes me chuckle but i know there is some very very good seen um, civil servants that and, actually and run it you're absolutely right even though they have a department behind them they're the ones that make the final decisions they're director of the group so therefore you know they it's down to go to decide which emphasis and which pressure to put on which area so you know, let's keep putting the pressure on him and we'll lobby him if we want something, I guess. Let's exactly. just say he stays for longer than a month. Um, and lastly, Phil, just over to you on what you'd like to see him change, what you'd like to see him implement. Yeah, uh, I think he knows we need more and better housing stock. So uh, to put it diplomatically, you know, build more freaking houses, basically, <laughs> or, or allow us to take the shackles off. Uh, you know, that include that includes social housing as as, as well as, you know, um, you know, as, as well as sort of. Um, yeah, well, we all know if you if you improve the stock of social yeah. housing, we can get those that are on social benefits out of private rentals and get some people back yeah. into rental markets. It puts some yeah, it just, the, market, the yeah, whole balance, yeah, yeah, and that that's part of the problem why house prices are so exponentially high is, is because there's just not enough stock, supply and demand. So, yeah, well, there's still rumbles my, that they're going to change message. the planning and uh, uh, planning departments yeah. and planning sections. So, fingers crossed, local authorities will have more chance to give away land. Well. As if by magic, with one minute to go, that's our time up. Um, so just enough time to say a massive thank you to Ray. Ray, you have been absolutely phenomenal on the yes. podcast day. It's been great to have somebody with your experience. So thank, thank you, you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Ray. Brilliant. Pleasure. And uh, good to meet you, Phil and Tony, again. <laughs> yeah.
Great, sir. And thank you to, to Tony and Phil also. Um, and thank you for you that are listening. Um, this is November's edition. December's will be out on the 1st of December. Uh, don't forget, if you're using or listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, sign up for the series because that will get you um, access to all the time. If you're driving in your car, uh, something I've not been able to say before, if you're driving in your car, you can now find us by asking your smart speaker to play SFI Not So Live. So um, we'll be talking a little bit more about that over the coming weeks, won't we, Tony? Because we're a little chuffed. So yeah, yeah. ask your smart speaker, to, smart, smart speaker to play SFI Not So Live and you'll find us. So that's it from us for this month. A big thank you to the panel. A big thank you for listening and we'll see you in December. Goodbye. See you, everybody. Bye. Bye.